Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 261. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and... I hope you caught episode 260 last week, my interview with Saj Razvi on psychedelic assisted psychotherapies using medical cannabis and ketamine. I thought it was so interesting when he explained what makes up the default mode network. I was like mind blown because I get it, but I didn't get it at that level. So part two goes more in depth into how the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy happens and their training process. So I hope you will enjoy this one just as much as last week. I know there's been a lot of interest in what they're doing. I am very excited about it. So as I mentioned in last week's episode, you can sign up for one of their webinars on their website, which is psychedelicsomatic.org. And when you sign up for the webinar, if you are doing it because you heard about it on Therapy Chat, please let them know that. We have partnered so that I can help them spread the word. And I'm hoping to attend their training in DC, July, 2021. So if you're in the DC area and you're a therapist, you might be interested in doing that too. All right. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback. If you go to therapychatpodcast.com, you can leave me a message using your voice with SpeakPipe. I love when that happens. And you can also email me at therapychat.podcast at gmail.com if you have something you'd like to let me know. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, we are going to continue the fascinating discussion that was started last week when I spoke with Saj Razvi of the Psychedelic Somatic Institute about his work training therapists in a therapy model that is specifically for using psychedelic assisted therapies. So Saj, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me again. So let's just pick up right where we left off. We were talking about how you have 
developed a, a model for psychotherapy using psychedelics, specifically you're working with cannabis and ketamine. Am I right? That's correct. Yes. So why don't you just give our audience a, a little overview of how you're doing all that? And, and then we'll get right into talking more about that model. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we were a training organization that was started in the early 2000s, and we've really focused on uh, somatic trauma work. Again, we thought it was sort of addressing the cause of why most people end up in therapy and why most people end up in therapy for years, because there's a lot of treatment resistance. And uh, so that's our background. And then more recently, we got involved with the psychedelic research with MAPS and and then basically paused our, our trainings uh, simply to revamp them to include psychedelic processing because it was, again, the psychedelic modal medicines boosted what we saw clinically significantly enough that we didn't want to run trainings without it. And so uh, that's so we have a training model that really focuses on the the therapy techniques that optimize psychedelic medicine. And, you know, it can be used with MDMA, it can be used with psilocybin. I've had experience working with both in clinical trials as well as in Amsterdam. But uh, what we're very excited about is that it can be used with something that is readily accessible, easily accessible and, and inexpensive and not under an FDA framework something like cannabis that has legalization through the states as opposed to a you know a, a medical uh, framework so that that is our our great excitement about this we were surprised when we saw the responses uh that we could get from uh, something like cannabis uh, as compared to what we saw with other medicines because it it speaks to a grassroots quality here right so we the the mission that i personally hold is that psychedelic therapy should be accessible to anybody who it's appropriate for who's and who seeks it and i think the way that it's going to be rolling out in our society is going to be through you know, through a, a for-profit model of, of healthcare and things like that. And uh, the excitement for us is that, no, you know, we can use medicines that create that psychedelic response that can be used in, uh, in a private practice setting as opposed to a larger institute setting that has a psychiatrist on board that has, you know, two clinicians that can do this work, th things like that. So it sounds so promising and I'm really excited about it. Can you tell us, I want you to tell our audience about your model, but you were mentioning to me how there are kind of two different paths to working with psychedelic assisted therapies. And I'm wondering if you can kind of tell our audience about that before we go into talking about the model. Sure. And are you referring to the two the different paths? Model or oh, yeah. Okay. okay, great. Yeah. So there are there's something known as the sitter model or sitter schools that that train people in it and it's basically the model that's been used since the 1950s in psychedelic research and it's still being used today like when johns hopkins runs psilocybin trials or imperial college runs these trials they're using the sitter model so the basics of it are that 
the heavy lifting, the therapeutic interaction is between the participant and the psychedelic that they take, right? So it's a very internal experience that they're having. There are two therapists sitting with that person, but there's not much, if any, interaction between them. Uh, there's no expectation that the client, the participant should be talking to the therapist or, or the therapist talking to them. Frequently, people are sitting very the therapists are sitting in a meditative stance, just kind of holding space for for the participant. And sometimes they may come out and just, you know, ask them to hold their hand or be taken to the bathroom or something like that. They're there for just in case something happens. Um, so I would refer to that model as the non-directive, non-interactional model. Right. And so and the, the good news with it is that it works. We know that it works. Right? Uh, we can tell that, you know, the results from basically uh what i would call unguided you know loosely guided psychedelic use is that the the results are typically better than what we see with uh current psychiatric treatments so that's one the other option is the integration model that's kind of in trending at this point uh and the integration model is saying that you know there's enough awareness by people in the world around like Michael Pollan's book or what's happening with the research that people are taking it upon themselves to do their own psychedelic work by themselves or with an underground shaman or a practitioner. And then after they've done that, then they go to a therapist and then derive therapeutic benefit from it. So that's the integration model. It's an after the fact model. And so currently training programs are either one of the one or the other. The CIIS program in uh, California is a much more of that sitter model where they, you know, you, you learn, OK, this is the effect of, um, you know, music on on the client. And this is how you, you choose a playlist, things like that. And then and then the other model, of course, is the, the integration one. And so how what we're doing is different from that is that. We think that if you develop a psychotherapy that's designed to work with non-ordinary states of consciousness, that the heavy lifting can and should be done during the actual psychedelic session, right? So, and, and we find that if the therapist is a player in the, in the participant's psyche during that experience, then it changes the direction of the session because left, left, left to themselves, typically clients will often have transpersonal experiences or uh, cosmic consciousness experiences or unity consciousness experiences, which are very sort of powerful. They're based on taking higher doses. And, you know, there's a there's an existential reconciliation. There's a lot that can happen at that level, but it's moving beyond a person's own ego and their autobiographical uh, material, basically moving beyond themselves to go to a much larger sense of identity, much larger sense of self, which again, it's powerful. That's how the sitter model works. Our suggestion is if you have a, a human relationship that's active in the session, then it directs the session from transpersonal or cosmic consciousness to autobiographical, to the person's family of origin, to their childhood, to the, the stresses and traumas in their life. Um, it, it makes it a human session. It makes it a human relational session. And the idea, the, so we, we articulated a, a tier system here, suggesting that, you know, it's a good idea for people to process the things that cause them to have a, a wounded, developmentally fragmented ego before they go to transpersonal states. So the basic premise of all this is 
you know, before you transcend your ego, it's a good idea to have a healthy ego. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And what comes up for me is that not to knock the other ways, but, you know, I hear, I tend to hear anecdotally the things when things go wrong for people, how they'll have this big experience, um, not necessarily with psychedelics, but let's say they'll do some kind of big trauma releasing experience of some kind on their own. And then there's like a backlash in some way where they're, they're not, they don't, it kind of takes them away from what feels like healing to them. And you yeah. know, it's like they have a great experience, but then they have a negative experience afterwards that makes them afraid to do more healing work. So it's, and that just like instinctively based on what I know, I'm hearing that could be an outcome of not, you know, the wounded place is still wounded. And then you go and have this big thing. But then when you come back, the, the woundedness is like very painful. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I could be wrong. No, no, I, I would completely agree with that assessment of it. You know, when you're, you're just working in a different realm, when you're doing transpersonal work than you are, then working in the realm of your nervous system, your biology and your relationships. I would agree that it's much harder to integrate, much harder to um, assimilate what you get in a in a cosmic consciousness state into your ordinary waking uh, wounded ego reality. If so, yeah, it's I think what we see is that people tend to want to return to that big picture experience more frequently and they need to return there because it's not something that they can take home with them They're their small self is not healthy enough to integrate the um, the experience. Yeah, that feels so true. And and it also brings to mind the whole idea of um, that what was wounded in relationship as, you know, childhood relational trauma, family of origin trauma is, has to be healed in relationship. That's what I've learned. I would fully agree. Yeah. Um, relational wounding re requires relational healing. I don't, I don't see any way around it. And there's a profound therapeutic opportunity that I, again, not knocking the other pathways. They, they do accomplish things. They're, I, they're, they're there for a reason. And I think we can build up upon what we've learned there. You know, there is a therapeutic, therapeutic opportunity that's lost when sessions, psychedelic sessions are, don't involve relationships, yeah. right? Uh, there's, uh, there's so much we, we find that on the one side, you know, people can have powerful corrective emotional experiences. Uh, touch in a psychedelic session is incredibly powerful because all the parts of somebody that needed touch that are now defended against touch, <laughs> against nurturing touch are up at the surface because they're not being protected anymore. They're not being censored anymore. And so if people receive corrective nurturing touch, they internalize that. They're, it goes to a very deep place in people when they get that. And then the flip side of that is that, you know, people have a lot of internalized um, negative transference around that that comes from the the traumatic relationships that they've had in their life. So just uh, I think a quick definition here. So we're all on the same page. You know, transference is when a person takes the experiences, the feelings, the sensations, the memories, the thoughts that were uh, that came from a prior relationship in their life and then projects them onto a current relationship in their life. And that could be the therapist, but it could also be a spouse. Right. And so when you're dealing with uh, complex early childhood trauma, 
that is so it, it, that is laden with heavy amounts of negative transference. In fact, one of the things that we saw in the MDMA trial was that because there were we had the luxury of having two therapists per participant, the participant would quickly their their psyche would quickly pick one therapist who would be the, become their idealized parent. It would be the parent that they wish they have, the parent that was attuned to them. And then their psyche picks the other therapist to pick to be the parent they got. <laughs> you know, so to basically that that therapist holds the negative transference. And frequently for, you know, for people who, let's say, had, you know, a male perpetrator parent or something like that uh, as a child, they would tell their their male therapist to just, you know, sit in a corner of the room. They don't want to interact with them. They don't want to hear from them. They don't want them to get up. You know, they. You know, they, it was such powerful transference that got opened up because we're taking a deep dive into the uncensored primary conscious of of people during a psychedelic state. During regular therapy, people censor this all the time. They they they're feeling this from a bottom up place, but their but their conscious rational mind is suppressing that. That's not what's going on in a psychedelic session, and so there's an incredible opportunity when that transference comes out to to allow it to welcome it by the therapist and unfortunately one of the things that's happening in the in the world of therapy training is that you know with a focus on something like CBT most clinicians are not trained to work with powerful negative transference so it's very easy to be blown out of the water as a therapist and and you know your your participant your client is sitting there looking at you like you you don't care about them like they you hate them or you're going to perpetrate against them or or something like that they're basically handing the therapist a script of who they need them to be and the script is an ugly ugly script and so um it takes training to to be able to sit with that kind of uh uh thing yeah yeah and then you have you know a relational rupture in the therapeutic relationship mm -hmm. you can either be able to repair it if you know if you know what's happening and you know how or you can the the client has a negative experience the therapy ends and you know that's a new wounding yeah yeah and and i would say just like all of those pieces can happen to a much deeper extent than they happen in traditional therapy simply because the you know the the regulators the 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 bumpers that hold the bowling ball on in the alleyway are no longer there right so uh yeah, yeah. So can you tell us about the model that you have developed Yeah yeah well you know, we are starting from the basics, meaning that, you know, we look at the, the basic biological reactivity that people hold in their system. So here, here's a way of thinking about it. It's a, an, an example that we use in the, um, in the paper, which is let's say somebody has depression, but that depression is coming from the fact that they only eat sugar, right? And their, their brain is not making neurotransmitters because they, they have a, a horrible diet. Is is that how do you treat that depression? Do you treat it because uh, as a, a you know this is like they're transpersonally they're disconnected from their world, or relationally they they have things going on? Our suggestion is no. Like you have to address where things are coming from, and so you have to get this person to make neurotransmitters and have a better diet. That you have to handle their biology, and so similarly to that. We find that people that have a lot of stress and trauma in their system 
And by that, I mean, you know, they have lots of anxiety responses. They have panic responses on the um, sympathetic anxiety side of the spectrum. Uh, the flip side of that is that they have a lot of numbing depressive responses, uh, like uh, dissociation, right? People feel disconnected from themselves and other uh, and, and their world. And that is very frequently we find a, a response to um, traumatic events. And, and so our suggestion is, you know, let's work at the level of body. Let's work at the level of the nervous system that comes online because primary consciousness comes online. You know, these, these homeostatic mechanisms are far more available to us. And so once we resolve uh, somebody's core nervous system reactivity or their core dissociation that's going on, then they can sort of move up the ladder and then start working with more complex things like, you know, like the, the definition of intimacy, the definition of father, the defini- definition of mother, things like that, how, how they hold at a very core programming level, how they hold intimacy and what it means to them. Is it a positive thing? Do you get to relax with intimacy or do you have to be on guard because it comes with strings that are, that are attached? So basically we're working from the biological to the relational and then the, the transpersonal, right? So there really is a place for, for transpersonal work here. We're just suggesting, you know, taking the, the developmental pathway to get there. Is that, is that answering the question or? I think that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I I'm really curious. One of the things that we ended with in our part one was the you were saying that you found that cannabis can I think you said unlock dissociation. And I I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about that, because my the way I see it, my perspective is that the reason why talk therapy, even somatically oriented talk therapy can can be such a slow process is that, you know, it's it's the trust building process takes so long because the person is so defended against it because of previous negative experiences from childhood where it wasn't safe to trust and to be cared for and to receive help, you know. And what really inspires me when I hear about these psychedelic therapies is that it seems as if those dissociative processes can be more safely, I guess, I don't want to say overcome or removed because they're there for a reason, but they can, the person can safely let their guard down enough to receive the information they need to be able to trust within the relationship. I don't know if I'm oversimplifying it, but it seems like it's like, it's not a magic bullet. It's, it's a quicker path to developing emotional safety. Am I off base here? No, no, I I think that's a definitely a good, a clear player in, in the dynamic. And I, I love what you said there. there. It's as impressive and deep as psychedelic medicine can allow us to work. It is not a magic bullet. There's no uh, deus ex machina. There's no magical thing that happens that all of a sudden people take, uh, take this or take a high dose of anything. And, and all of a sudden their trauma is gone. That's not what we see happen. People have to work. Clinicians work. Um, it takes it, it takes a lot of focus and moving with things, feeling with feeling things that are very difficult. So um, and I actually even think that, you know, this idea that people have of, oh, it's a one and done or a three and done model is not accurate. I don't think that's what the, the data is telling us. So I just wanted to sort of uh, touch on that before moving on to the rest of your your thought there. 
Yeah, I, I would say that reestablishing relationship, reestablishing trust, reestablishing attachment is a big part of what happens in psychedelic work. Definitely with MDMA, it just softens everything. It makes people more open to themselves, to their clinician, to the world, right? And so all of a sudden, you're introducing the resource of relationship into a space that was, you know, armored against it and didn't have it when it needed it. And so it, it, uh, I, I would say that that's a resource that allows opening and the processing of trauma. But I think the, the process still has to be there. There's a lot of just raw nervous system charge that, that comes up for people when they open these doors. Right. So that's how I would see that. The one, I think caveat to that, I would say, is with something like cannabis, which is that I don't think cannabis works in the same way that MDMA works. I mean, we know like neurologically and biochemically, it doesn't work the same ways at all. One's works on one's an amphetamine molecule. The other one is a uh, works on the endocannabinoid system. But one of the things that I think cannabis does so excellently that that is therapeutically helpful is that it basically interrupts all of the interrupters that we have. It in interrupts all of the coping mechanisms. It interrupts all of the ways that we censor what our nervous system is actually trying to do. And so so I guess what I'm saying is that there are a, a couple of different pathways to get to the really wonderful processing that we see in psychedelic medicine. One is what you were describing, the relationship, right? That you, you feel connected with yourself and other people in the world and you're, you know, your backpack is full. You're ready to climb that mountain now. The other way is, well, all the mechanisms that you have that prevented you from, <laughs> from, from, from prevented your body from doing what it wanted to do. Uh, we're interrupting those mechanisms, you know, and consequently, that's the reason I think why uh, cannabis is hated by many in, in mental health. People don't trust it. I think they see it like like they see vodka, right? Like it doesn't allow people to do insight work. It doesn't allow people to do uh, talk very much. It does. It basically interrupts all of these higher order meaning making functions that that CBT relies on. But if your modality is valuing very different things, like if you va value very deep contact with the, your emotions and your body, then I think cannabis is something that is pretty perfect for that. That's really interesting what you just said. And I do see that some clinicians have an extreme negative reaction, even a fearfulness about cannabis. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's just so many mixed messages going around because there's one group of people who say it's dangerous and it can cause psychosis. And then there's another group of people who think, you know, that it's natural and it's better than pharmaceuticals. And, but then there's the whole, you know, it's more than just natural. It's like, what is the scientific process that's happening inside? What's the biolog biological process that's happening with the endocannabinoids, which I don't pretend to know or understand. But, <laughs> um, you know, it seems like there's a lot going on. And when I saw your one of the videos you sent me, which people can access on your website, the a woman in part of the video, this struck me, I've mentioned it to you a few times already, but struck me so deeply how this woman was first experiencing a freeze response and then, you know, moved through to like a discharging of fear. And I've never seen someone have a somatic experience like that 
Well, at all, but also with cannabis. And I've never dreamed that that would be possible. So I was extremely curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, we see that pretty regularly um, with cannabis. Again, it's I don't know the biology behind this, but for some reason, cannabis interrupts defensive responses. It interrupts avoidant responses. It interrupts dissociative responses. So let's say you're working with somebody who, let's take a, a very simple single event trauma, like a car accident or something like that. And normally they would be, when they bring it up, they, they move into a numbed out, flattened dissociative state. When you bring cannabis on board with that, that, that same person relatively quickly starts having high anxiety responses, uh, fight or flight responses, other types of nervous system responses. It basically breaks up the frozenness that is dissociation. And then they begin to have sort of the responses that we would want them to have that, you know, might take, you know, many sessions to get somebody to that. We see that turn on relatively quickly with cannabis. And there's a pitfall to that. There is absolutely <laughs> a pitfall to, you know, the it's a therapeutic opportunity and a pitfall in terms of how deep and how quickly psychedelics go to work in a person's system, right? So, you know, I think the clinician, the the participant, the client has to be aware that, you know, doors are going to be, oh, the doors are going to open up in your psyche that have been shut for a very long time. And you're going to feel things that you, 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 you don't know about, you're not expecting. At our clinical site in Colorado, Innate Path, uh, we would just let people know about that uh, ahead of time that, you know, for anybody engaging in psychedelic therapy, their functioning is going to decrease over the short term, right? So they're going to need extra resourcing. They're going to need extra integration. They're going to need extra support as the medicine and the psychotherapy is going to work in their system. So we did a pilot study, for example, with combat veterans, and we gave them the option of using either uh, cannabis or ketamine. Most of them use cannabis. And the arc of treatment looks something like this, where, you know, these people were were absolutely treatment resistant. Uh, they had gone through the the hoops that the that the VA puts them through in terms of psychiatric options, and so they were all pretty much using high doses of cannabis to manage their PTSD symptoms um, before coming into this pilot study. And so they took this the same plant, the same thing that they used to manage symptoms, and but they put it in a different context, right? In psychotherapy, they had no faith <laughs> that, that this was going to work. And basically around session two, three, four, that's when they really fell apart, right? That's when, you know, all the, the coping strategies that they were trying to use to hob, hobble things together, that's when those things fell apart. And that's when, you know, we, we set up different groups and things like that, integration groups, art therapy groups, uh, yoga groups, uh, things like that to kind of support them. And then it was around session 9, 10, 11, 12, where their systems really started to come back together in a much more stable, much more organic way. So they were they were spending that time processing a great deal, which is what you saw in that video, Laura. Mm -hmm. So the, the arc of it is about fall apart early, stay falling apart and then and then come back together um you know around session 9 10 11 and you know that's with a group of people that had enormous amounts of adult war trauma as well as uh significant childhood trauma if somebody's approaching the table with 
you know, much um, a much lighter load than that, then we would expect a, a very different arc of therapy. That's really interesting. And in the example you just gave of the, you said it was a pilot study with the combat veterans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were they, did they stay in your location? Like, was it a residential treatment or was it just week by week or how was the timing structured? Yeah, it was not a residential treatment. It was done in the same way that we would do outpatient psychotherapy. And some of them were from out of state. uh, And we knew that they were living in Colorado just so that they could you know, do this, do this program. It was, a, it was a 12 session uh, protocol, which we extended at the end to being 18 sessions altogether. So yeah, it was, it was outpatient. And one of the things that we offered to these guys was uh, the possibility of doubling up on their sessions. So if they wanted to double up and get their 12 done sooner, then they could, they wouldn't have to stay in Colorado. Uh, some of them tried it and then moved back to the single session a week because it, it is destabilizing. It is, uh, um, you know, the things that come up, they were, they were like, we're, we're fine with one a week, <laughs> basically. Yeah. <I> can wait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I will also say that we saw the same exact thing in the MDMA clinical trials, right? So for anybody out there that thinks that, you know, psychedelic therapy is a light, easy, you know, walk in the park kind of thing. It is not at all. And I think that's also one of the reasons why we don't see addiction with any of this, because when people are working with on psychedelics, they are going to hell realms. They're going to very difficult places inside of themselves. They have the support of the medicine. They have the support of the therapy to get them to the other side of it. But it's it's by no means an easy process. People will, at the end of an MDMA session, take off their eye shades and just say, like, why, why do they call that ecstasy? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that kind of thing. So we don't see addiction because it, it's not something that you take, you get high, everything gets better, and then you come back down and, and then your life is still very painful and difficult, in which case that I think is the pattern to set up for, uh, that's a setup for addiction. This is very different. People don't treat this lightly at, at all, right? And what the one other big, I think, significant piece I would add is the veteran group that we worked with, they ended up using less cannabis after the pilot study to, you know, uh, on, a, on a daily basis, they used less cannabis to numb the pain in their lives than they did before the study. So for anybody who's concerned about, you know, we're supporting drug use or something like that, again, therapeutic use of these medicines, I think is very different than recreational or even, you know, repeated long-term use of these medicines. Uh, you know, we saw, again, a decrease afterwards. Yeah, I, you know, you use this expression when we were talking offline band-aid, but I can see how, you know, it's like the way we tend to see the function of cannabis in supporting PTSD is for the symptoms. So that's the band-aid, you know, to calm mm-hmm. or numb the symptoms, you know, feel less. And then this is like, it's deeper, it's feel more, but, you know, move through it instead of just putting a band-aid on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that the two different ways, I, I think those are good ways of describing it. You know, I think one option is the symptom management option, which is, you know, to a large extent, I think the entire world of psychiatry is a symptom management approach. And um, I think a lot of what we do in psychotherapy is symptom management. 
which if that's what you need to do to, you know, if that works for the time being, then great. It's sometimes it's necessary. But I think these tools are giving us a very different world. I think we're in a symptom resolution world with uh, with these types of medicines at this point. Yeah, that's, I, that's what we're seeing in the clinical trials. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I agree. It sounds like it. I mean, yeah. I know that, you know, we can heal from trauma, but you processing it is the way to heal and, and to process it, you know, people cannot feel ready. And that's what prolongs the, the process, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's at their own place. I totally get that. But mm. this sounds very, oh my gosh, the potential is just so exciting. I think so. I think we're looking at a revolution in mental health. I think we were looking at it with, um, you know, even though, again, I think, you know, if when MDMA comes out in the sort of the limitations on how it can be used and the context in which it can be used and the and the cost and the, the medicalization of it and everything, even with that, it is a revolution in mental health. I think we're going to start looking at mental health as not just a highly functional secondary consciousness process. I think we're going to start saying that, look, you know, um, non-rational, uh, non-verbal processes that, you know, dream processes, uh, things that don't look nice and tidy or make sense in a lot of ways. I think the, the primary consciousness mind is going to achieve a, a, a new status in terms of, you know, where we derive our mental health from. You know, so one of the things that we talk about in that in that paper is, you know, there are this is not bad mouthing um, or putting down secondary consciousness. You know, do you want your surgeon to be steeped in secondary consciousness? Do you want the airline pilot that's flying your plane, that, the plane that you're on? To be in secondary consciousness, absolutely you do. <laughs> you want that. But does that mean that you want to derive all of your meaning of the world? Do you want to derive your direct contact with nature? Do you want to derive your uh, experience of the divine from secondary consciousness? I think not, right? I think, you know, even, even most of, uh, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but most of the religion that we have is a you know, a secondhand account of somebody else's primary account, uh, primary encounter with God, with with the divine. And I think one of the things that really changes with psychedelics is people have their own primary experience of the divine. They have their own primary experience of the world. It's, I think, it's the difference between being a chess player that you know you're removed from the game, you're you're analyzing the game, you're seeing the game from a meta position versus being in the game, right? Uh, being in the flow of life where you feel things in a very different way than you do when you, you, you think about life through the lens of secondary consciousness. Mm. So interesting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so as we finish up for our part two, what would you want clinicians who are listening to know? I'll give you a two-parter. What would you want clinicians who are listening to know? And what would you want people who are listening who aren't clinicians, but might be curious about these therapies? What would you want each group to know? <sighs> okay. Okay, great. <laughs> great, great, great. Let me see. For clinicians, or I would even say anybody in the healing arts world, right? So I would expand it beyond just clinicians. I would say that we did not get into this field to put band-aids on profound wounds. And and I think a lot of times, you know, we're doing it because, you know, we're an empathic bunch and this is our life mission. But 
I think the tools that we have that are coming online now are, allow us to do so much more than that. But that means that we have to really think about therapy in a radically different way. We have to sort of, you know, let go of the idea that the, of, you know, um, that, you know, people can't have very intense experiences and come out on the other side and be in a, in a very different place. I mean, people absolutely need support. People absolutely need, you know, integration and, and support between sessions. But the sessions, yeah, trust people to take that deep dive, right? They're built for it. We are built for it. <laughs> we have a, a nervous system that's taken millions and millions of years to evolve that is designed to homeostatically process these experiences. Um, it, it's, I would say it's the difference between feeling your way through anxiety and panic and depression versus thinking your way through those things, right? I think it's far more effective to feel your way through it. And I think that's the access that psychedelics give us. The other piece that I'd like people to really know is this is not something that has to be in the hands of, you know, a corporation, uh, a for-profit model. This is not something that has to roll out in our society through those means or through the, you know, the heavy medicalized regulation that is going to be imposed by the FDA. This is something that is available to us now. We've been doing it for years and we had, we had the state of Colorado specifically look at our program. We invited them to look at it because we were, we're a fairly large clinic and, you know, we didn't want to invest all of that and uh, and then have the, the state say, no, we're not appreciative of what you're doing. So we had them look at it and they were fine with uh, with how we've constructed our model, which, you know, using cannabis and ketamine along with psychotherapy. And again, because especially cannabis is a is already approved for the condition of PTSD in most states. So I guess I just want to say it's possible to do psychedelic psychotherapy in your private practice today. It's not something we have to wait for. Uh, you do need training for it. You absolutely have to have your own experience. You have to sort of take the, your own deep dive and know the, the processes of primary consciousness are very different than the processes that, that rule secondary consciousness. So I want to uh, give hope and, and inspiration to people like, yeah, we're, you know, we're on the cusp of something really amazing here. And the other group was to, was it to consumers of therapy, Laura, or who are you yeah, thinking? People who are curious about different ways to heal from their traumatic experiences. Yeah. Guys, I, there's really good news here. Um, I think people really can heal from their traumatic experiences. It's don't, but don't get me, don't confuse what I'm saying there with saying that like there, there's a magic bullet or a super easy way to do it. It still takes a lot of focus and attention and commitment on your time. And it takes working with somebody who knows what they're doing. This is, Again, this is not magical stuff. You don't just take a high dose of something and have a powerful experience and then everything's better. I, I mean, potentially, I'm sure there's some group of people that that can happen for. I don't want to rule that out. But there's also equally uh, somebody on the other side who can have powerfully traumatic experiences. I will say that one of my um, one of the people on our team, uh, Steve Elfrink, was uh, one of the uh, University of uh, Wisconsin Madison uh, psilocybin participants, and you know he had an escalating higher dose, and they were doing the sitter model with him, 
And he describes that as profoundly traumatic, <laughs> or I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth, but, um, you know, he, 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 this is a person that had a lot of trauma and there was just a lot of space for him to sort of go into it and loop and loop and loop around in it. And it was just, he describes it as pure suffering. You know, I think these medicines are incredible, but they do need direction. They do need contact and, and engagement therapeutically. Um, I, I don't think that's true if you're, you don't have a lot of trauma or mental health concerns. I think if you're sort of the, the average neurotic walking around, you know, you can do an ayahuasca session in Peru or you can do these ceremonial sessions that are designed for, you know, a, a sense of spirituality and worship. And I'm not saying anything about those. I think those are incredible. But if you have a significant mental health concern, then I think your focus needs to be mental health with the use of these medicines at this point. Well, it's very helpful. And I appreciate you saying that the, someone, we all need to know what we're doing if we're doing this work, whether it's, you know, for a consumer who may seek out this type of therapy, you need to be working with someone who knows what they're doing. And if you're a practitioner, some kind of healing, helping professional, you need to know what you're doing to be doing this kind of work. So where can people find out more about your training? I know I'm interested. Yay. Yay. Uh, we'd love to have you. Um, uh, we do, you can go to psychedelicsomatic.org. And I'll just say the way that we've structured this training is there's a five-day in-person component, and then there's an eight-month remote supervision component. And and the reason for that is that people don't magically learn skills overnight. They really have to practice and practice and practice and implement and things like that. So we designed it to be sort of longer term like that. I think relevant piece here is that we don't want people to travel for this. And what because because a person's cohort that they train with is important, right? Uh, and what I mean by that is you doing this work by providing sessions to people in your training and receiving sessions for people in your training is critically important, right? The, just getting time in the seat, getting time in that psychedelic space is very important. And then, and then you bring everything that happened to supervision. And because of that, if we're running a training in Dayton, Ohio, we don't want people flying in from Chicago or something to take that training simply because they're not going to have a cohort there in Chicago yet to do that, that, that practice trade with. So our goal is to have smaller trainings, like 12 to 15 people trainings and, and all, not just the major cities, but, but smaller places. So if you guys go to psychedelicsomatic.org, you can see a list of the places that we have right now. And if you want to have a training in your local area and you have some people that you think might be interested, then uh, shoot us an email and we'll, we'll help you um, organize it. That's great because I didn't see DC or Baltimore on that list. So <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, talk with some people and see if people want to bring that. Um, because, you know, I was like, I'll go to Boston, but. Um, no, no, we'll, we'll come to you. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think you probably have some pull, Laura. <laughs> you can probably. I don't know about pull, but <laughs> I do know a lot of pull. You do know. Yeah. <laughs> Saj, thank you again for being my guest on Therapy Chat and talking with us about this fascinating area of study and practice. This has been great, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. 
Just wanted to take a minute to tell you about my trauma therapist consultation groups. These are small online groups for trauma therapists or therapists who are working with clients who have trauma and want to become more trauma-informed in the way they practice. The groups are limited to six people per group, and we meet one hour or one hour and a half per month, depending on which option you choose. And the group is for learning, improving your skills, connecting with additional resources for helping trauma survivors. And it's also for support and community because being a therapist can be very isolating and trauma work can be very isolating. So we come together and share our common experiences to help each other remember that we're all human and give and receive support. So if you're interested in learning more, you can sign up for the email list to find out when registration opens. It will be opening on February 1st. And if you want to be one of the first to find out about that when it goes live, join the email list. There is a link in the show notes for this episode to sign up for that. I'll also announce it here on the podcast when registration opens. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.